In December 2013, I was a junior in high school. Royals and Wrecking Ball were the songs no one could get away from. At the box office, Catching Fire and Frozen were dominating, but Let It Go hadn't wormed its way into everyone's head on repeat. Yet. Obama had been sworn in for his second term earlier in January. Two years earlier, Donald Trump lost the Republican primary. Gay marriage had just become legal in my home state, but it wouldn't become nationwide law for another 18 months. Ellen Page hadn't come out yet. Laverne Cox wasn't going to be on the cover of Time until the following year. Homophobic gossip at school was something I was very used to. In December 2013, I had been waiting 18 months for the airing of BBC Sherlock Series 3. If you were on Tumblr seven years ago, or even if you've just been on heritageposts.tumblr.com, you have an idea about the general atmosphere. There was, and still is, nowhere on the internet quite like it. If you're not familiar, let's take a moment to go back in time and reminisce about what that corner of the internet was like. The hipster versus fandom feud was still going, although it was on its way out. People from each group would hijack each other's posts on a regular basis with chains of gifts that would take ages to load because internet speeds were way worse. You could make toaster waffles in the time Netflix took to buffer, and if someone else in your household was checking their email while you were busy sucking the bandwidth scrolling through 30 gifts of Misha Collins, you would both be tapping your feet. Take a moment to breathe in that atmosphere. Then remember, or imagine, what it was like to be young and gay, and what reflections young gay people were seeing of themselves in popular culture. It doesn't seem that long ago, but in the seven years since, we have had this explosion of content representing all kinds of people who identify as LGBT+. GLAD's Where We Are on TV report for the year 2013 reported that out of 796 primetime broadcast scripted series regulars, 26 will be LGBT, or 3.3%. In 2019, that soared to 12.2%, or almost a fourfold increase. And honestly, the representation is a lot better these days. It's not just quantity, it's quality as well. When I was in middle school, from 2008 to 2011, the only network television show that made me feel seen at all was Glee. I'm emphasizing this so much to really point out how much things have changed, how even when I was looking up these facts, I was a little blown away, like, damn, was it really that bad? At the time, though, LGBT people were really desperate for content, especially genre content. Content that didn't reduce its LGBT characters to stereotypes, that let them live these full, productive, interesting lives where their sexuality was not the most interesting thing about them. Gay people didn't get to be Starfleet officers. Trans people didn't get to be sci-fi hacktivists. Lesbians didn't get to be superheroes. Bi people didn't get to be detectives. It feels like we have so much content now that we're drowning in it, even. Seven years ago, we were parched. Which isn't to say we can't do better. Obviously we can. Obviously we need to. But in 2013, a new show with a gay character, no matter how stereotyped, was kind of an event. In 2020, I can't keep up with all the shows my friends recommend to me because they have good representation. Black Sails, The Bold Type, Euphoria, that's just a couple that I haven't had time for yet. 
when Castiel confessed his love to Dean on Supernatural in this, the year 2020, actually, a lot of people condemned it because it wasn't enough. We've gotten used to better. But this is now. That was then. That desert of LGBT content from 2013 was the atmosphere that Sherlock Season 3, or Series 3, depending on which side of the Atlantic you're on, aired to. Let me tell you a little bit about the show, if you've never seen it. Essentially, it is a modern-day retelling of the Sherlock Holmes stories and novels by Arthur Conan Doyle. The first season really focuses on the emerging partnership between Sherlock Holmes and John Watson, a doctor who, like in the stories and novels, has recently returned from military service in Afghanistan. He's polite, thoughtful, a bit straight-laced, rule-following, and intelligent, if sometimes myopic. In an almost chance encounter, he meets Sherlock Holmes, this chaotic, rude, abrasive man who is a force of nature. He has a blazing fast intellect and a natural predilection for the macabre, gross, and depraved. His vocation is consulting for Scotland Yard on the weirdest and nastiest crimes that they come across. Together, through series one, the two of them forge a symbiotic, if sometimes fraught, relationship that takes them on a collision course with an organized crime lord known as Moriarty. Season one ends on a cliffhanger, with a confrontation that seems like it could kill all three of them. Season two explores the delicate balance between Moriarty and Sherlock, as Sherlock foils a proxy war Moriarty is waging against the British government, which, side note, good for him. And eventually, at the end of the season finale, Sherlock ends up accused of having faked all the crimes he solved just in order to earn notoriety. With only a few minutes left in the runtime, we watch him jump off the roof of a hospital and seemingly die. But in the final shot, we see him spy on John as John visits Sherlock's grave. The show aired three 90-minute episodes per season, for four seasons, with one 90-minute special between seasons three and four. The gaps between seasons ranged from 18 months to two years, which was just enough time to whip passionate fans into a frenzy of speculation, fan art, literary analysis, and heated debates. Between seasons one and two, a lot of the discussion and speculation was about how they would extricate themselves from the confrontation with Moriarty. Between seasons two and three, everyone wondered how on earth Sherlock had survived falling off a 10-story building, and many fans worked hard on theories that tried to explain the minutiae of his ruse. It's funny, actually. I revisited my childhood bedroom recently, and I pulled out a legal pad from 2012 that had almost perfect predictions about how Sherlock survived and what was going to happen early in season three. The thing was, though... By the time I ever rediscovered that legal pad, maybe a few years afterwards, the fall wasn't what mattered to me as a fan of the series, because after series three, the material ripe for discussion, at least for me and many others, became less how Sherlock would or did survive this or that predicament, but rather how the show would resolve the intense, palpable romantic tension between the two leads. Namely, for me and many others, it seemed inevitable that they would end up as a couple. This theory became known in a tongue-in-cheek way as the John Locke Conspiracy. Through the five episodes of this podcast series, we're going to talk about that theory and the community that cropped up around it. 
the hoping, the wishing, the friendships, the love, the marriages, yes, real marriages, and the pure, unadulterated passion of loving a fictional creation with all of one's heart. We'll talk about the passionate love so many had for the series and why so many came to the conclusion that if John and Sherlock didn't end as a couple, the series should be consigned to the rubbish pile. This is Gay or Trash, a cultural history of TJLC.